Hey, this is Raymond Benson, and you're listening to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, your rogue agents. We got a bit of a film review for you on this episode, and everybody is really excited about it. We'll get to that in a minute, but first, <coughs> Delvin, are you going to be okay? I am. I'm sorry. I All right. Something in my throat. Well, I was going to introduce everybody first, and I want to do a little change up. We usually ask, what's the most Bond Mike thing you've done since last recording? This time around, gentlemen, I want you to think about this. So I'll start with Jason. Because he'll have the answer off the top of his head. You guys can take a little time to think about it. For your eyes only. Okay. (laughs) Correct. All right. Question number two. No, I'm just kidding. The question this time around, gentlemen, as you introduce yourselves, is what is your favorite James Bond outfit? When did you think he looked the most baller, the most dapper? So, Jason, I will start with you. What do you think is your favorite outfit? And oh, by the way, don't forget to introduce yourself. Oh, hey, everybody. I'm Jason Weasel Skull Albrecht, and I got put on the spot for this question. I need some clarifying. So you said the most dapper, like which one I think he looks the best. Yeah, yeah you just think, or you just really like the outfit. Whatever outfit you like the best, man. Or or like the most bad A. Whichever way you want to go with it, man, because I know you're thinking about that blue terry cloth onesie. <laughs> blue terry cloth onesie. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, I mean, you can go wherever you want with this. Okay, I got it. This one's probably going to surprise you, but this is solidarity. Because as you may recall, and our listeners may remember, about a year ago, I took a trip to Scotland to attend a friend's wedding. And it was a technically a Welsh wedding, but there were kilts involved and I got to wear a kilt. And so with solidarity with my man, George Lazenby, I'm going to go with the kilt. Oh, let me tell you, when I wore the kilt, it was not true. (laughs) <laughs> did you uh write a little number eight on your inner thigh just to complete the ensemble <laughs> i had to write it myself but yeah nobody, none of the girls would write it for me understood all right next up we have delvin the dark web williams introduced you for you now all you got to do is tell us what you think is your favorite bond outfit i'll go back to the beginning when james bond was first introduced him coming into the room like he did and how he was introduced was pretty much anything I think about when it comes to James Bond, like, you know, Sean Connery looking completely dapper, you know, in the suit, owning the room with his presence. Absolutely. So I think that's a mood setter. And I think that's a good place. That's what I thought Bond was at his most dapper. Connery in the tux. You ever notice he doesn't have to ever stand in line? Like when he wants to go get his chips, he just walks right up and <laughs> Gets the chips, goes and sits down, goes into a restaurant, sits right down, doesn't That's have to, point. no reservation. Just <laughs> That's a good point. People asking for his autograph. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Let's hear from Pat, DJ Christophos. Welcome back to the show. What's your favorite Bond outfit? Uh, we're going to go with Tactic LBC 
Jared. Tactic LB335. Can I get a little more on that? Okay. Oh, oh, <laughs> never mind. I am going to choose. I'm with Delvin on the tuxedo. I really think that's really sharp, but I'm also torn between that and his naval outfit. Oh, in the Navy, I like that. Yeah, you like know, that. both are really sharp looking. Okay. On Bond. Pierce looked great in that naval outfit, man. Did every Bond wear the naval outfit? Negative. No Lazenby, no Dalton, yeah. no Craig. Okay. Which is a shame, because I'd love to see Dalton in the uniform. Don't judge me. The first outfit that you went with, the series of letters and numbers, is that a t-shirt you can order from our website? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get, oh, tactic B now, 35. What are you talking about? <laughs> Yes, correct. You're probably just as confused as I was. <laughs> okay. Oh, Maybe Alan knows. Out the line from the movie, it clicked in my head. Got it. I was slow. Alan was the only one who got it. Speaking of which, we have a very special guest with us. For some reason, he keeps coming back whenever we invite him. Ladies and gentlemen. It's not for the paycheck, I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's right. We haven't paid him a dime. Yeah, it's Mr. Alan Porter. Alan, I know you've got thoughts on Dapper Bond outfits. I do indeed. My first thought was Connery's suit in Goldfinger, the three-piece gray suit. Oh, yes, um, yes. But I will go back to tuxedos because, actually, for me, the best part of Die Another Day is Pierce's tuxedo when he's in the Ice Palace. I actually liked that one so much, I had my tuxedo made to the exact same style. Oh, fancy. Yeah. Say what you will about Die Another Day, and there's a lot we could say about it, but Pierce looked good. He did look, he looked really good, yeah. You know the whole line about, I know a good tailor in Hong Kong? I actually did that when I was actually in Hong Kong on business, and somebody actually said to me, I know a good tailor in Hong Kong, and I was like, I want a tuxedo, mate. I got the picture of that scene on my phone, and I went in and made, make me that. Nice! And they did. <laughs> it was awesome. It looks pretty neat. I have a tuxedo t-shirt. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> if you actually want to compare my tuxedo to Jared's tuxedo t-shirt and vote on which one looks the sharpest. Just look at the icons for the six of the best shows on the network. Yep. Yep. But in Jared's defense, the t-shirt was also made in Hong Kong. I'm yes. sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> I just held up a picture on my phone. <laughs> All right. And of course, I have Jared Albrecht, a.k.a. The Art Sale Artist. And I want to give a shout out to Sir Rogers, Suit and Jacket, Live and Let Die. When he goes to Harlem, the jacket's about knee length. It's a very sharp suit. He's got on some black leather, like, driving gloves. He looks very sharp. So I just want to give him a shout out on that. Plus, all the safari suits are great. So <laughs> with that, let's get into today's topic. You, Ladies you and gentlemen. the clown outfit. What's that? The clown outfit. Oh, the clown. <laughs> of course. Hey, let's not make fun of Daniel Craig now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jason got to use the joke Ooh. again. Oh, <laughs> All right, let me introduce today's actual topic. We are jumping in with both feet. We're going to be talking about Casino Royale. Yeah, right, fellas? Casino Royale. With cheese. 1967. Oh, the 67? I thought we were supposed to watch the Craig Casino Royale. Then you, sir, are the big winner. <laughs> I am. <laughs> no, we are going to get right in the Casino Royale, 1967. <laughs> Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. Join the Casino Royale fun movement. Mr. Bond, 
I'm Lieutenant Mathis of the Special Police. Peter Sellers is James Bond. These are my credentials. They appear to be in order. Ursula Andress is James Bond. David Niven is James Bond. Woody Allen is James Bond. My, my doctor says I can't have bullets enter my body at any time. What if I said I was pregnant? Joanna Pettit is James Bond. Rather warm in here, don't you think? Cooler, Charlie. Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. Orson Welles is the heaviest heavy of smirch. Dahlia Lavi is James Bond. I'm the new secret weapon. Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. Next, Terence Cooper is James Bond. Barbara Boucher is James Bond. Casino Royale is indestructibly wild. Hello, Sailor. Indescribably funny. Oh, you like that sort of thing, eh? Casino Royale Fun Movement. And here's your summary, as written by me. Good luck summarizing. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> it's, it's one little paragraph. You're going to like this. <clears throat> All right. Here we go. When M is killed, Sir James Bond, the original James Bond, comes back into the service to run the department. He enlists the help of his daughter, Mata Bond, his nephew, Jimmy Bond, and card-playing expert, Evelyn Trimble, codenamed James Bond, for some reason. I guess to stop a chief, or maybe his boss, Dr. Noah. I don't know, and I don't care. There, there's your summary. <laughs> That's what I've got. And with that, Delvin, you look like you could have, <laughs> you could have shortened it further and just flushed the toilet. <laughs> There's going to be a wait wait a minute now. I watched an over two hour movie, and all I got is a two sentence summary. (laughs) You didn't see that coming, did you? I was hoping for some somebody to fill in some blanks here. Yeah, well, that's what Alan's here for. Okay, we're going to let Alan do a little deeper dive later in the show, but we're going to do what we always do. Okay, gentlemen, let's kick this off with a quick around the horn. Is this a first watch or a rewatch, Alan? Multiple rewatch. I don't know how many times I've watched this movie. I'm just a sucker for it. <laughs> Poor bastard. <laughs> Pat. Uh, it's a first time for me. Delvin, I know this is a rewatch. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately not, Jared. It's a first watch for me, sir. Weasel Skull. I tried to watch it once before, got about 30 minutes into it and abandoned ship. So this is my first full watch. Yeah, I watched it 20 years ago, and this is my second watch. We're going to do a couple rounds of highs and lows. So, dig deep on them highs, boys, and 
Well, the lows are plentiful, but we are going to start with our guest, Alan. Round one, high, low, what the? The whole movie's a what the, so let's do highs and lows. What do you got? I'm going to start with a high, and it's the thing that introduced me to this movie. It's the music. Soundtrack album is one of my favorites. I love the theme song, The Look of Love, the general score that Bert Backrack put together, Herb Albert theme, Dusty Springfield with the song in the middle. Great score. And he actually had to score this after they cut the movie together. So he scored it based on the footage because things were changing so quickly that every time he tried to write a score, things changed and scenes were moved, new scenes added and stuff. So he gave up and waited till they actually had a first edit and then scored it on the first edit. So uh, how he produced such a great score to that edit, I have no idea. But mm. uh, for me, it's actually one of my all-time favorite albums, uh, particularly on vinyl. It sounds awesome on vinyl. So that's my highest. It's the Burt Baccarat score. It's one of my top five on scores. Oh, okay. I know you and I and Raymond Benson talked about it on an episode long ago in our musical yeah. Bond series. We did. I agree. I think it is a wonderful score. I may be stealing a footnote from you for later, but I did read that it's the only James Bond score to have two songs chart at the same time. The main theme and the look of love both charted. So it's always going to have that honor. So, yep, that was definitely in my notes, too, as a high, the score. So Alan got to that one early. From there, let's go to Pet, a.k.a. DJ Cristados. Hi. Hello, what the, what the, what the, what? <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. Actually, Alan took my first high as well, too. When I started watching the credits and saw Burt Bacharach, I had to pause it, rewind it a little bit and to make sure I saw that name correctly. I'm like, oh, yeah, pretty cool. I know that guy. So this should be a pretty good soundtrack. And it was. I tended to listen to it more, probably because I fell asleep a little bit. So I probably heard the music. <laughs> what? <laughs> We'll get into that a little bit later. But anyway, I really enjoyed the music on it. So my other high that I have is the cool sets. They really had some really interesting mm -hmm. sets that they had and the locations that they were at. I thought that was really neat to see. And they did a great job on just building these really wacky, elaborate sets. I'll second that, Pat. It is a visually engaging film in many parts. Yes. I will give you that. <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten a lot of positivity. Let's keep the ball rolling. Delve with the Dark Web Williams. <laughs> you can hear them air brakes lock it up. I can say positive. If I'm going to say positive, it's that Mike Myers very clearly watched this movie at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you 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 lay this side by side with the Austin Powers and you see a lot of where he got yeah, it from. There were several things that I saw from that, and I thought that I was out of comparisons when I saw Dr. No, and clearly not, because at some point, I mean, it's not very surprising given the character that Mike Myers is, but this was a movie that he had to watch more than once. You saw so, that rotating bed, you knew. <laughs> right. Taking the pictures, yeah, mm -hmm. like while on the rotating bed. Mm -hmm. no. I, I don't quite know what was going on, on during that scene in the movie. Me neither. So, yeah, I will leave that as my high because, I mean, there should at least be one or two nice things that I say about even this one. Well done, Delvin. Stick around for round two, everybody. All right. <laughs> Jason, the weasel skull. All brick round one. You're going to keep it. We got we got highs and highs and highs, Jason. Can you, can you dig deep and find one more? You're going to break the chain. No, I do have one more. I'm going to give a high to Woody Allen. I think. I laughed exactly twice in this movie, and both times it was something that he said or did. 
The first one was when you first see him and he escapes the one <laughs> firing squad and like <laughs> climb the wall and drop in front of the other firing squad. That was funny. That was legit funny. And then the second one was when he explained what his virus did. And it was make all women beautiful and make all men die who are above four foot seven. <laughs> like, respect, Woody. I liked respect. it when he was miming. When yes, he couldn't that, talk in front of all the things he was doing there too. was pretty good, too. Yeah. So out of all of them, Woody Allen's the only one that I really found funny and entertaining in, in the film. So <laughs> my high is Woody Allen. Well, as we finish our first round, I'll I'll sneak in a little bit here because I laughed out loud one other time I can think of, and it was when they were trying to figure out what to do with M's toupee, and she said we might just have to call it a heirloom, and I was like, yeah. oh my god! I heard it. Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> Only you would have laughed at that. And I was one. like, all right, this is Jared joke right there. Just the fact that they were like befuddled of like, is it part of him or is it not part of him? That was funny. And then the heirloom just pushed me over. So anyway, we did a positive round one. Let's get around two. Alan, you going to keep the positivity train rolling or are you going to take a hammer to this film? You're not going with your positivity. You're not allowed because you're the host. The one we were talking about before we went on air. Well, I, I leave it for you, sir, if you want it. I, or I can do it at the end of this round if you want to do something else. Okay. I'm actually going to do what was for me a low. And I'm just going to contradict a couple of you guys. Because actually the one thing I hate about this movie is Woody Allen. <laughs> uh oh Jason the, the weasel's call it must be an American thing there were some funny moments I did like the as you said the firing squad one I like the supposedly ad lib joke about my doctor says I'm not allowed to have bullets into my body at any time um, <laughs> that's funny the whole Dr. Noah subplot with him in it um, apparently I'm just giving a bit of the backstory here I'll go more into the backstory later but one of the things was that when he was hired on to write for this movie, he was sort of also conned into he had to appear in it. It was another way of getting more money. He didn't really want to appear in it. And it is pretty obvious that he really doesn't want to be there. And a lot of the stuff that he wrote got rewritten. To be honest, I just don't find him particularly funny in pretty much any of his movies. So it's not my sense of humor. I just didn't get it. And I'm not a big fan of slapstick either. So it just his whole stick didn't work for me at all all right well alan that explains why you don't like the johnny english movies and i do so we'll move on from there doesn't like slapstick and i'm like oh that explains why he couldn't get through johnny english part one it's 90 percent slapstick. i watched more of woody allen than i did of the johnny english <laughs> oh it hurts my heart alan i thought we were gonna bond over johnny english <laughs> but it didn't work out we'll have you back for that podcast anyway <laughs> Pat, you've been so patient for round two. What do you got? Are you going to do a high or a low? Or what you thinking, brother? I guess I'm going to say the low for me is I really didn't know what was kind of happening in this one. But, Nobody and, but it's, it's <laughs> I'm going to turn it into a high because I found that really funny because I'm like, I don't know what the what's going on with this thing. You know, the big beginning, he meets Mathis and then it just cuts to whatever. Okay, yeah, what is yeah. going on? I really felt like that was in there so they could be like hey everyone seriously peter sellers is in this movie he's not going to show back up for another half hour 45 minutes yeah. but he's in the movie just yeah. well yeah that's what's crazy too and then, then we go to this older bond and i'm like i don't know what's going on why is he older and i got so many couple other questions about this film oh right. maybe you should save those for when alan does his thing we you can do a question rounds with him okay yeah because i do have a few questions 
that have come up that had kind of piqued my interest in this. So, okay. but yeah, I, I kind of felt, like I said, I fell asleep for a little bit. I was watching it late at night. And so I, I fell asleep, but then I woke up like when he's meeting his daughter. So, uh, yeah. So I had to go back and watch. I think I missed the piece between the Q area and then it goes to that. So maybe 10, 15 minutes of the, <laughs> but I don't think I missed anything. Not necessarily. There's huge jumps in this movie that just aren't there. So. Yeah, and, and and was it me or I, maybe the version I watched towards the end? How did he get captured? Next thing you know, he's in the sports car and he's going to go off and then, boom, it just jumps to him sitting in a chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it didn't show, I don't think. Yeah, we'll talk about that when I get Okay. And then what really, I started watching, I'm like, maybe I should have done a count of how many times his clothes change and the original Bond clothes change all the time he had like three or four different changes of clothes just in the beginning alone not a lot of continuity in this movie (laughs) (laughs) still fun time watching it though it's just so wackity that i enjoyed it well speaking of wackity let's check in with delvin the dark williams on his round two delvin you look like you're mad at me (laughs) (laughs) makes my goofy comic look pretty good doesn't it (laughs) Yeah, so if, if we were going to do a bit at the start and you derailed it because you asked a question, my bit would have been it's like, yeah, I'm recalling, you know, my wedding day. And, you know, my brother was my best man. And then I uh, see Henry was there and there's, there's TJ and, and, and then there's Jim. Like, am I forgetting anyone who was, who was there? You forgot after? me. You forgot me. No, no. Am I in my new history? <laughs> I have completely written you out oh, of my wedding. Oh. Like, you were not there because oh. friends would not do this oh. to friends. That like, like, would have been the bit that I was going to say. Okay. For the life of me, I didn't see the point of the movie. I was sort of sitting there and like, okay, what point is it making? And it's interesting because you guys have mentioned the part about Woody Allen not really wanting to be in it. And in a sense, it was kind of like a joyless cash grab, which should tell you where I'm leaning towards like, you know, the Star Wars holiday film, like where like the three major characters of Star Wars, they were there, but like it, could I even joke to Jared? Like how long do you think they were there on set total? Like I'm guessing two hours. Mm, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it just felt like they phoned it in and like so it was interesting that Woody Allen kind of did the same thing because it was just kind of like again, for the life of me, I just didn't see any coherent point to the movie almost to the end where like it ended like you would have thought John Landis directed it. I mean, there are cowboys that came in shooting, whatever there's like, hooping and hollering and just like crazy music. And it's like, what, what, what is this? And, and a James Bond who didn't chase after girls and wanted to prove how his bona fides about not sleeping with women. Like, what? <laughs> what? What is what is the entire point of this? Like, so that's a bad slash what the I didn't get the point of any of it is can't help you out. And also you're you're no longer in my wedding. Sorry, you're not there anymore. <sighs> Fair enough. I, I, I deserve it. I deserve it. <laughs> it's fine. Jason. Well, this is a serious what the I'm curious, and maybe Alan can shed some light on this. There was the scene where Peter Sellers is meeting the Q, I guess, for lack of a better 
description. Yeah, yeah. It is cute. And there's a scene there where he has the pen and the cue's like, hey, be careful. That shoots acid. And he makes the quip about good for poison pen letters, no doubt, or something to that effect. They're like, that's just stupid. We're not, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And so I'm wondering, because the same quote, this almost the same scene is used in Octopussy. Mm-hmm. Was this intentional or was this just actually a like, coincidence? It was actually one of the other things that I had in my notes was the small number of small things in here that popped up in later Bond movies. That's yeah. The other one, you just mentioned Q. Q is actually drinking his tea out of a mug with Q on it. Like Ben yes. does in the Daniel Craig movies, and when I saw that. I was like, no, oh. "He doesn't exist to me." So yeah, but we won't talk no. about Millennial. Yeah, there's lots of little things in it that actually just little these micro moments that actually ended up being used in some of the later Bond movies, which makes me wonder whether somebody in the Bond production movie actually has a secret enjoyment of this, or how <laughs> many times, or something. Right. Yeah. It seemed ironic to me that. The gag in Casino 67 was like, this pun is so bad yeah, that you can't use it in Casino 67. It's like <laughs> too low brow for that's the gag. Right. And then you use it in Octopussy, yeah. But you're going to use it in Octopussy, right? And yeah. Gosh darn it. I thought it was funny when Roger Moore said it. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. Of course, I liked Heirloom. So, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, that was kind of my what the moment. Like, hmm, I just wonder if. If Octopussy used this intentionally or not. Interesting question. Interesting question. Who knows? Maybe old Mickey G was a big fan of this movie or something and squeezed these things in. I don't know, but I'm going to end the official rounds. I actually will do a high, even though there's plenty in this movie that, I don't know, I was telling Alan I'd seen it last 20 years ago. 2001 is when I watched it, and I just hated it. I just flat out hated it. And then this time around, I popped it in, I started watching it, and I was like, it's not as bad as I remember. This is better than I remember. And then it just like it steadily does the nose dive. <laughs> and I was like, nope. By the end, I was like, nope, I still feel the same way. I genuinely just do not like it. I will not return to it unless I'm forced to for a podcast. But having said that, the one thing I noticed that it has outdone every other Eon produced James Bond movie. And I'm even going to include Never Say Never Again. This movie has more gorgeous women in it than maybe any movie in the history of the world. If only somebody here knew exactly how many gorgeous women were in this movie. 142. 142. Alan did the research. I counted them all one by one. (laughs) Freeze frame pause. (laughs) So you did like uh, Money Penny had to do with the Bond agents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over the course of a few painstaking hours. I I could have actually just read a book about the making of Christina Royale West. That scene with Buddy Pitty like trying out those other agents was weird. It was kind of hot. (laughs) (laughs) That was, I will play this card too while I've got the mic. Sexiest Money Penny ever. Drop the card right there. Oh, she was smoking. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. But thank goodness that, you know, the new M slash all James Bond absolutely wouldn't touch her under any circumstances. (laughs) He's a professional. Well, he did kind of go in there and plant a big kiss on her, and then she was like, I'm actually Money Penny's daughter. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Yeah, it was like a gentleman's kiss, though. You know, strictly professional. Uh, I'm picking up that Delvin likes his, his bond to be a little more smarmy. 
All, all I'm saying is if I had a job like that where I'm required to be like fit and buff and look good in tuxedos, the last thing I'm going to be saying is like, yes, I'm taking this. I'm taking this oath of abstinence. That's the thing that handsome, dapper, single Delvin is going to do on this dangerous job is not sleep with women. What? No one <laughs> would say that ever. And that was Delvin the Dark Ladies and Gentlemen. So now we'll go into the fun facts. And let me tell you guys something. There's not a lot of fun facts to be found about this movie because the production was just riddled with problems. Starting with, we mentioned Woody Allen did not really want to be part of it. And they kept basically telling him, oh, we need you here for an extra day. Oh, we need you here for an extra day. We need you for another day. And he got so fed up with being strung along with when he would actually be done. At one point, he just got up, went to his hotel, got his bags, went to Heathrow, and flew back to New York. So in a huff, he didn't even change out of his costume. He left in his wardrobe from the set and flew home. <laughs> <laughs> that is some dedication right there. He'd had enough. <laughs> As I'm quite certain Alan will go into in greater detail, you guys may have noticed... Maybe not. There was a little camera trickery going on, but Peter Sellers and Orson Welles never actually filmed a scene together. Apparently, Peter Sellers hated Orson Welles and refused to do scenes with him, even though he reportedly recommended him for the part. So I read a little behind the scenes about what might have caused that conflict, but I, I don't want to take too much from Alan and what he may have to say. So I'm going to let that lie. And if we intrigued, re- intrigued, if we need to uh, revisit that, we can, if that's not part of Alan's spiel for this evening. My final fun fact is no fun at all. I mean, Peter Sellers, as Alan is going to illuminate, really just was having a breakdown of sorts during this production. And at one point he fired his gun into the face of Jacqueline Bissett. Just like surprise, first shot, first take, just, shot his gun. It had blanks in it, but Jason, you know from action film face-off, when you fire a blank, does stuff actually come out of the barrel? Yes, it does. Very fast, very hot. Yes, she got her face peppered with the stuff from the barrel. Was not pleased and was very on edge anytime she had to do scenes with Peter Sellers after that. And that is a terrible fun fact, but it really sets the stage for how badly this production went. And with that wonderful build-up, Alan... (laughs) Tell us about the production of Casino Royale 67. Let us know what you've got, and then we can pepper Alan with questions. So a little background. Let's go back to March 1955. Ian Fleming sold the film rights to Casino Royale to a producer called Gregory Ratoff for the grand sum of $6,000. Just in 1956 is pretty reasonable amount. Ratoff commissioned a script from Lorenzo Semple Jr., who actually went on to write Never Say Never Again, as well as the Batman TV show, among other things. And he thought Bond was completely unbelievable and stupid. So he rewrote it with a version with a female spy called Jane Bond. Original, hey? So all this stuff recently about James Bond should be Jane Bond, there's nothing new in that. They were talking about that in 1956. And uh, Ratoff passed away suddenly in 1960, and he had actually borrowed money to buy the rights from Ian Fleming. So the rights ended up with his creditors, one of which was a movie producer called Charles K. Feldman, who is the name that you see at the beginning of the movie as the producer of this version of Casino Royale. When this happened, Cubby Broccoli approached Feldman to buy the rights back, but he refused. Feldman went on to talk 
with director Howard Hawks to do a Casino Royale movie with Cary Grant as James Bond. But that sort of fell apart. Then after the success of Eon's Bond with Dr. No, he approached United Artists and Eon again about buying the rights, but they couldn't come to an agreement. So during this, a, write, a screenwriter called Ben Hecht produced multiple versions of potential treatments for this movie, mostly straight adaptations of the novel's plots and themes really focused around the vice and gambling side. It was actually pretty brutal. It's probably be, If it had ever been filmed, it would be the most darkest, most brutal Bond I think we'd ever seen on screen. It was very heavy on uh, the sex and violence side. And uh, they were actually kept swapping the lead character out. At some points, they felt it was too violent for the characters who actually be Bond, and it should be a New York card-playing gangster. And then it went back to being Bond. It was swapping backwards and forwards. While they were doing this, they kept trying to get Sean Connery or loan Sean Connery from Eon to be in it. And eventually, they realized that they would never be able to actually get Sean Connery. So this screenwriter, Ben Heck, came up with the idea that in the movie, they would actually give another agent the codename of James Bond and the number of James Bond to cover the fact that it wasn't Sean Connery, that this was a thing that would get passed from agent to agent. So you can blame the whole, is James Bond a codename thing on this screenwriter, Ben Heck. And he turned in a script and then two days later died from a heart attack, at which point his script was basically binned. And the only thing from his script that ever made it into the movie is the whole giving people the codename 007. While this was going on, Charles Feldman had actually reached out to actor Terence Cooper and had promised him the role of 007 in his proposed Casino Royale movie. And Terence Cooper was in the movie. He's the agent who doesn't sleep with women. He's meant to be sort of the straight-up version of James Bond. That was all, everything that was happening sort of the late 50s, like over a 10-year period between the mid-50s and the mid-60s. Around 65, Feldman had another talk with Eon about trying to see if Eon wanted to buy the rights or Eon approaching him. I, can't, I think it was actually Eon approached him about buying the rights back and they couldn't come to an agreement. But Feldman had just had a huge hit with a 1960s screwball adult comedy called What's New Pussycat, which if you watch Casino Royale when they lift up the grate in Berlin, the idea of hiding in the cellars, you can hear the theme tune from What's New Pussycat playing. Mm-hmm. That movie starred Peter O'Toole, Peter Sellers, Woody Allen and Ursula Andress with a score by Burt Bacharach. See the connections here? Hmm. So Feldman thought he could do was take this idea of the success he'd had with What's New Pussycat of a screwball comedy and apply it to the Casino Royale property and make what he called a high-comedy, big-budget, psychedelic comedy that would, quote, be the final word on the spy craze. He Basically, he wanted to close down <laughs> the spy craze. It's like, if I can't have a Bond franchise, I'm going to close down the whole thing with this crazy movie. It took a good shot at it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Close. Gave it all he got. Right. So when it comes to the plot, the original idea was to have four separate Bond mini-stories, each with a different version of Bond, each with its own director. So they would be four completely separate vignettes, each one being a different take on Bond. One would be the retired Bond, Sir James Bond, the David Niven character. One would be the more traditional Bond, which would be the Terence Cooper character. And then there was a story about a croupier who was recruited to play Le Chief and given the Bond codename. That was the Peter Sellers part. And the fourth one was going to be a female Bond, and Shirley MacLaine was actually attached to potentially play that role. And that morphed into the Marta Bond character in the final movie. So the idea was you had these four separate things, and each director would tell their own separate stories about a different version of James Bond. But then at some point, they felt a linking thread was needed to pull all these together, which is where the Sir James Bond, Vesper Lind narrative 
was added to sort of try and bring them all together and make it into one sort of cohesive story. So that's why you've got four separate pieces all done by different directors. Well, it makes more sense now. So John Houston did the scenes of Sir James Bond and his house in Scotland. Director Kenneth Hughes did the Berlin scenes, the Martha Bond stuff. Joseph McGrath, who was Peter Sellers' first choice of director for his scenes, did some of his stuff until he and Peter Sellers got into an argument and Peter Sellers punched him. And then he was replaced by Richard Talmadage, I think he's pronounced, who did the whole big finale scene. And then Val Guest was brought on to do scenes, the Woody Allen scenes. Robert Parrish did the scenes with Peter Sellers and Orson Welles. You can see it was all just a mess. If you notice at the credits, it says, I think, additional scenes by Val Guest. Basically, he was given the the job of trying to figure out a way of actually stitching it all together. I think contracted for eight weeks and ended up working on it for over a year, just trying to make something out of the mess he'd been handed. But to go to Jared's point, the main drama was actually not on screen, but was on set. And it was mainly around Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers felt he wanted to play the character straight, even though he'd been hired to ad lib his way through like he had done with What's New Pussycat. And he was given basically the power to do anything he wanted, and he took that to the extreme. He changed the character from the croupier to the baccarat expert, Evelyn Tremble, changed the name, kept rewriting and improvising screens. It was Sellers who basically had her old scenes. So you were talking about the photo session on the revolving bed, and what was that about? That was Peter Sellers putting in a scene so he could indulge his passion with photography and do impersonations of famous people and dress up. Um, it was all there just because that's what Peter Sellers wanted to do. He wanted to do his silly voices. And in fact, when they filmed it, they did it with the dialogue in the relevant languages. So he spoke German when he was impersonating Hitler. He spoke French when he was doing Lautrec and Napoleon. And then they had to reshoot it all with it in English. So that was purely Peter Sellers. The Scottish pipe band was completely Peter Sellers. That was originally meant to be him having a hallucination and being chased by a herd of elephants, and he didn't like that idea, so he got rid of that and put in the uh, Scottish pipe band for some reason. And then Sellers also hired his own writer to do his dialogue because he wanted to outshine Orson Welles and Woody Allen. Other people were putting their hands in. They reckon as many as 12 writers, and it could have been even more actually fiddled with the script. Each director would be given the script with the other segments left blank, so they had no idea of the overall story. The only person who actually ever saw an overall screenplay was the director, Feldman, which he kept in a safe in his hotel room. And he only ever came on set, I think, three times during the whole year that they were filming this movie. So nobody who was actually filming it had any idea about the actual complete script was. Um, scripts were written, rewritten overnight, which is why the exchange between Wells and Sellers makes very little sense because they changed the dialogue between filming one of them. They changed the dialogue that night and then they filmed the other person and as they weren't in the same room. They're actually having two separate conversations, and it's edited together as if they're having a dialogue exchange. So, yeah, it was just completely weird. Sellers was often late. He kept the crews waiting around. Sometimes he'd turn up like late in the day. He'd go absent for days or weeks. He'd fly over to his wife's place in Sweden and not come back. He would report in sick. And as Jared said, he refused to appear in his scenes with Wells. He was intimidated by Orson Wells. It seems their first meeting, he was completely intimidated, and then he basically decided to pick on Orson Welles. He kept making jokes about Orson Welles' weight. Sellers had gone through a strict weight loss regime himself and had health problems, lost a lot of weight. He thought anybody should be able to do it, and he was always picking on Orson Welles for his weight. And he was on the edge of a breakdown. Uh, Welles apparently was a gentleman. He would hang around the set, talk to everybody, greet everybody when he came in in the morning, would hang around, do his magic tricks, keep people entertained. And uh, apparently at one point, really put it off, was they were hanging around on the set. They were there all day, and Peter Sellers 
was late and he was actually in his car on a telephone talking to somebody on the set, asking them what impact it was him making people wait. And Wells found out about this, so was obviously not happy. And then when Peter Sellers actually turned up, Wells arranged for the technicians to shine a spotlight on Peter Sellers and have everybody give him a sarcastic round of applause for turning up, which didn't go down too well with Peter Sellers. And the two basically didn't speak to each other from that point on. So, uh, yeah, he would not turn up. I also had the note about him losing his temper, firing the PPK at Jacqueline Bissett, as was mentioned. And the thing is, Sellers was contracted for a certain period of time. And when that ran out, he tried to invoke an overrun clause in his contract that if the movie ran beyond his contracted date, he would get a week's pay for every day they overran. But the reason they were overrunning was because of his antics. But he kept pushing this, trying to get this extra money. So they fired him. And he actually, they hadn't actually finished filming all of the Evelyn Tremble scripted sequences, which is why, to the question that was asked earlier on, there's no sequence of how Tremble was actually captured by Le Chief because that was mm. not filmed. That was one of the things that was never So what they did, and this is why it gets, some of the ways it gets funky is they hadn't filmed a lot of the end sequences and they did talk about bringing in a body double for sellers and they decided they actually had enough stuff in the can that they could reuse it. So they took stuff that had been filmed and cut already cut and cut it back into the movie, which is why the beginning of the car chase you get to see it is from that. And then in the sort of psychedelic dream sequence, you see a bit with Sellers and Ursula Andress messing around on the sofa and him playing the piano on her leg. That was an outtake. The beauty pageant bit was an outtake. And then right at the end of the movie, when they all go off to heaven, you'll see Peter Sellers is still in his Scottish uniform rather than in with the um, angel's wings because he wasn't there to film that final scene. So they used some unused footage of him still in the Scottish Piper's uniform and put that in the end. So, yeah, it was just a basic mess. So the first cut, the first edited cut, ran for three hours, and they sent that to Columbia Pictures, who promptly took control of the movie away from the producer and recut it down to 131 minutes and removed most of the explanatory linking footage that they actually had and focused just on the slapstick and what they thought was the comedy stuff. What you've got and what you see is just a mess of all the stuff that went on, all the script changes, the changing stories, the relationships between all the all the various actors, the fact that they filmed a lot of stuff out of order. You'll see haircuts change, you see costumes change. You talked about the sets. They actually built a whole bunch of sets they never used. They built like a spaceship set, um, other sets that Peter Sellers was like, oh yeah, like, I've got, had this great idea. There was one where they had a, a roulette wheel where he was the ball and the Dividers were pretty girls in different colored costumes and stuff like that. That was filmed and never used. They built sets that they never used. Yeah. So it really was just a complete mess. And then the, the studio got hold of it and just hacked it to pieces. So, yeah. So I'll take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> While you take that breath, I want to let the audience know. I already let the fellows know, and they're mad at me again. If only we lived in Switzerland, was it? The, the Swiss cut of this movie is like 90 minutes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, everybody was mad that we couldn't watch the Swiss cut instead. <laughs> <laughs> Has been recut, re-released, and stuff Is all over the place. Yeah, but never any better. Never any better. And there's a lot. A lot of the footage that was cut was cut was thrown away. So a lot of the scenes that we know are missing, we only know are missing because of still photographs that were taken on set and things like that. Publicity photos that ended up in magazines, and then that scene never appeared in the movie. It's interesting though, and you're explanation helps define it because like jared i really felt like when i first started watching the movie 
I felt like this isn't really my cup of tea. It's not really what I'd like to see with James Bond, but it made sense. I could see what they were trying to do. I think, as Delvin pointed out, it had an Austin Power-ish kind of vibe. And I thought, okay, you know, I can ride this out. But then as you progress through it, it just starts taking lefts and rights. And it just, it almost feels like you've walked into a different movie at certain points in times. And after hearing your explanation now, I understand why. I always think of it as sort of two intertwined movies. There's two distinct storylines. The way I do it is there's the Sir James Bond, Dr. Noah one, sort of envelopes around it. And then inside it, you've got the one which I actually really quite like, other than the fact that Sellers was a complete idiot, is the Evelyn Tremble, Vesper Lind, one of them picking somebody and him training to go up against Lashif until it, you get to the psychedelic stuff at the end. And then it just they just started throwing stuff together to finish the movie. Yeah. So I, I tend to think of it as like one story wrapped in another. There was a funny line in there when old boy says, are we sure Tremble's not a double agent? And she's like, he's so incompetent, he can barely be a single agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I can just add a little bit to the whole Sellers-Wells feud. I read that the Queen's sister, Princess Margaret. The Princess Margaret thing, yeah, I've forgotten about that. Yeah. yeah she visited <laughs> the set and like Sellers, it was a big deal to Sellers. It went big on welcoming her to set and making a big deal of her presence there. And only person she was really interested in talking to all day, Orson Welles. <laughs> well, there's also the background to that. He got uh, because basically he was friends with Snowden, who was Princess Margaret's husband. So he was making a big thing that I'm the one who's brought royalty to the set and oh. blah, blah, blah. And she walked on set and saw Orson Welles. She's like, Orson, I haven't seen you in like four weeks. Where have you been? Um, and <laughs> completely ignored Pizza Sellers. And, uh, yeah. 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 So, yeah. <laughs> It's a real shame because, uh, as I was telling the guys, too, the, the Pink Panther movies, for the vast majority of them, are brilliant. And he, he could be so funny. Just and I, he's I, a really great straight actor, too. Particularly towards the end of his career, he did some really good straight parts as well. Uh, this was really at the point where his new marriage was breaking down. He, he was going through mental issues. And I think he'd been built up too much, that he'd been given too much power too quickly. So I don't know how much you know about Peter Sellers, but basically he came out of a show called The Goon Show on BBC Radio, on the radio, which was very much a precursor to Monty Python. It's very anarchic. There was four, started off with four, and then three main actors on it, and he was one of them. And he would basically work up until the point he would collapse, and it would play havoc with the schedule in the show because they do like a weekly show, and he would work and work and work to the point he collapsed, and then they'd have to put the show on hold, and he'd get better, and then he'd come back, and then he'd work and work and work until the point he collapsed. And that was hit the way he worked. And transferring that into the movie industry and all the additional hype and stuff that went on top of that, I think it just drove him to the point where he really just couldn't handle stuff anymore. That came out in so many different ways and bad behavior as well and bad marriages and stuff like that. But at this point, by the way, he was married to Britt Eklund from Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Good night. Good night. Good, Good night. night. Good night. Yeah. I do have a question. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the movie. The first M. Who was that actor? His voice, M's voice, was so familiar to me. I want to say I know it from somewhere. That was actually the director. It was John Houston. Wow. Yeah. He must have a voice that, and I can't place it. That's the problem is I'm sitting in a lot of movies. He is in a lot of movies, yeah. I'll have to look up. I never went to look up on IMDb what other movies it was. So maybe from there I could probably picture his voice. But, yeah, that was the director, John Houston. Yeah. 
he actually appeared in his own segment. I got a bad taste in my mouth from the moment they thought it would be clever to put a lion on the roof of the car and play the Born Free theme song. <laughs> <laughs> John Barry in there, yeah. Yes, the theme song written by John Barry, nonetheless. I was like, oh my. <laughs> that was actually shot at a place called Longleat Safari Park, which I've been to a few times, which is actually only just opened. So that was part of the publicity deal that they did with Longleat was if they included it in the movie, they would do some cross-promotion and stuff. And you can actually... You drive your car through the lion enclosure and the lions do come up to your car. And if you've got a larger car, they will come and sit on the roof and get up there. <laughs> Delvin, thoughts on that? Wackadoo. Hell no. <laughs> it's fun. You can't go in with an aerial on your car because you've also got monkey enclosures and the monkeys come in and they, they snap the aerials off the cars. I'm looking up some of filmography of John Houston. He did a lot of voice work. Like narration, he was a narrator on Black Cauldron, uh, uh, he was in Momo. He was a narrator on several episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It says so. so you probably heard the voices. Voice. The voice is probably yeah. what gave it away to me. I'm like, man, I, I can hear this voice. In my it is head a very distinctive song. voice. You're right, yeah. Delvin. You and I had a chance to ask any questions. You got anything for Al? I actually don't. It went into explaining a lot of what I thought about the movie. It just felt like. Uh, Frankenstein's monster. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, hearing all of the intricacies of why the monster became what it did, it's amazing that they even decided to produce anything to begin with because it just sounded like an entire mess from top to bottom. Okay, I got to talk about Frankenstein's monster because you just mentioned it. Frankenstein's monster in the movie. Oh, yeah, I forgot Frankenstein. Where's the office? Yeah, do you know who who that was? That's Dave Prowse, Darth Vader. That's his first movie. Um, oh, oh, hey. <laughs> oh, that's Shit. cool. The best thing is, he was actually hired to play a part called Super Poo. <laughs> <laughs> I just love to hear Super Poo in Alan's voice. It's my favorite. Super Poo, yes, which was basically a giant Winnie the Pooh, which Peter Sellers had in his part of the script, which was going to be part of Evelyn Tremble's hallucinations in being terrorized by a giant-sized Winnie the Pooh. Um, after the after the whole sellers debacle and they left and stuff, they decided not to do that. So Dave Prowse had basically been hired, hung around for two or three weeks to play this part that never happened. Got sent home. I thought his movie career had basically stopped before it started, and then he got a call to come back in. Um, the guy who was going to play Frankenstein was sick, and the costume just happened to fit Dave Prowse. So that was the start of his movie career. So. Oh, man, you know he was walking around all ticked off, too. Like, I've been walking around this red <laughs> shirt, no pants all day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure after just sitting there for two weeks doing nothing, he was like, oh, bother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's got poo jokes. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it feels like, you know, you go to sort of these real sort of progressive meetings and the person in charge of the meeting goes, all right, all right, there's going to be no bad ideas here. And we all know there's bad ideas, but like they actually took it to heart with him. <laughs> Next time I've been to a meeting and somebody says that, I'd be like, anybody see Casino Royale 67? Has anyone ever seen Casino 67? Because how I begged it differs. <laughs> how much money did this make? I mean, did it, yeah, it, it made top it 10? Was it? So the official budget was $8 million. Officially, the spend was $11 million. But if you read some of the reports, the Feldman put in a lot of his own money. So they reckon it could have cost as much as $20 million to make. Because he was like giving away Rolls Royces to entice people to move on, work on the movie. If you come and work on this movie, I'll give you a Rolls Royce. So he was like throwing money around left, right, and center. And I think it made 47 million, but it's been in pretty constant rotation on 
TV since and DVD sales and things like that. So I think it was in one of the top 15 movies of 60, or was it 67? Yeah, it was certainly in the top 20 in terms of earnings. It did pretty well. I can see where it's making its rounds now again. It's like, you can't believe what you're going to see in this movie. <laughs> I just, dare you to. It's like one of those dare you not to laugh or <laughs> dare you not to shut it off. <laughs> where, is this like in the same kind of category as, say, Rocky Horror Picture Show, where it's so bad that it becomes a cult classic? I mean, would you put it in that type of category? I don't know, cult classic, but yeah, there's, there's certain people who, like weird people like me who actually enjoy uh, sort of, appreciate it i wouldn't say enjoy it but appreciate it i think the more people learn about what went on and why it is the way it is there are so many little bits in it like you know i just talked about dave prouse it was his first movie this is the movie where carolyn monroe was discovered jacqueline Bissett was basically pulled out of the crowd in the casino scene and given the other role and it sort of launched her career you really dig into the people who are in it and it's also full of so many british character actors who were like friends of peter sellers or new people or new people on the production side who were in and out of it. If you know British TV and British cinema of the 60s and 70s, you can pretty much spot most of the cast. So it's got that sort of vibe to it as well of playing Where's Waldo? Uh, <laughs> of, of picking out who all the actors are. So yeah, I think it, it's sort of got a growing appreciation for why it is the way it is and what it did for a lot of people's careers and set them up and launched a lot of careers. It's almost like Apocalypse Now, where you, there's a movie about making the movie. You know, yeah. there's so much drama about making the movie. It's well, almost actually, yeah, about, well, the, yeah, the director I mentioned who pulled it all together. He actually says that in one of the, I think it's the interview on one of the DVDs. He actually says that somebody should make a movie about the making of Casino Royale. Well, until they make that movie, there's only one thing left to do, and that's score it. <laughs> so, <laughs> do we really have to? So get out your martini glasses, gentlemen. We score things on a scale of one to seven martinis. Seven means you loved it. It shook your martini. It was delicious. And six was, I, I liked it a lot. Five was, I liked it. And four was, it was good. And three is, it's okay. And two is, and one, one, it stirred your martini. We can't have that. So that's our scale of one to seven. And then after you reveal your score, I'm going to put you an on-the-spot question. So prepare yourself. Alan Porter, as our guest, gets to go first. One to seven martinis for this film. What do you give it? So like I said to you before, you said several times that I, I enjoy this movie. I don't enjoy this movie. I appreciate this movie. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. I think there's a lot going for it. I tend to watch it like once every couple of years, not once every 20 years. And I've often ranked it as sort of my middle of the pack guilty pleasure Bond movie. So based on that, I'm probably going to give it three. Woo, three martinis from Alan. And you're on the spot question, Alan. Casino 67 or OK Connery? Which one? Oh, you Casino play? 67. All right. Yeah. We've got the Alan's answers in. Pat, one to seven martinis. Well, I am going to, we'll start off with this. I'm at one right now for the music. Okay, fair. Two for the sets. Mm -hmm. And three because just the wackiness of it. So I'm with Alan at a three. Wow. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Will I watch it again? Maybe not every year or so, but get on the Jared twenty year plan. <laughs> yeah, Delvin, give ah! us your sol give us your solitary martini. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gussing this up. It was here's the worst thing about it. It didn't do anything for me. I sent you guys a message. I'm like, okay, I'm about an hour eighteen minutes in, and I'm waiting for the movie to start. 
It was just a series of strung along things and it evoked no emotion out of me. And that is a worse sin than anything else. How can you put together something for two hours and it not even evoke an emotion other than like, holy cow, what's the point? I kept That's watch, just I, watching it like a train wreck. I'm like, oh my God, what's happening now? Like, be- believe it or not, I came in with zero expectations. You know, I heard the Twitter comments and all, oh, yeah, and it's terrible and ha ha ha, and you can't wait to watch. I'm like, I know nothing about it. I've seen, you know, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale, but that's, you know, I, I knew that that wouldn't have much to do with this movie. It had a little bit to do with it. But, like, I just looked at it and was just like, I, I didn't see the point. Yep, beautiful woman, yes. And then, like, but it's so interesting hearing Alan's take on it about all the behind the scenes stuff. The behind the scenes stuff was far more interesting than the end product. The end product was just dreck. It just, it didn't do anything for me. And that's why it gives me a one. Answer your second question. It's okay, Connery, because heck, at least okay, Connery was more self-aware that it was a joke. They brought in Neil Connery for Pete's sake. <laughs> that is something where you can at least look back and like, yeah. And even like you know, brought in the old the people from Bond, uh, the original Bond movie, and paid them a little bit more just to kind of be along with the song and dance. That's at least. Winking at the audience, like, yeah, we know. Don't take this seriously. This is just <laughs> silly. Like, but this, it actually tried to take itself seriously. Like, even that mission statement about, you know, psychedelic spy movie with the humor. It's like, what? That sounded like the joke that, you know, Jared, like, we would make about, like, any band that's describing their mission statement. And it makes no sense to anyone else but the band. You know, with this fusion group, with a little bit of pop synth, with a, just a side of hip-hop punk. What? <laughs> just a dash of ska. <laughs> yeah. What does that mean? And then they're playing, like, a remake of Freebird. Like, what? <laughs> That's what this was. It tried to take itself seriously, and it was just, ugh. Understood. Weasel Skull, one to seven. And then you're way in on the... Casino 67 versus OK Conrad. Man, after Delvin's rant, I feel like the poor sucker that had to go after Martin Luther King on the I Have a Dream. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, everybody. (laughs) Traffic, (laughs) am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. No, I'm with Delvin all the way. I mean, to me, the thing about this, after hearing Alan's history of it, I'm really interested to see what the original concept would have looked like. The more based on the novel, the darker version. That's what I want to see. Gosh, I wish that they would have made that. Well, I guess they kind of did with Daniel Craig. Well, I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say, did we not see that in Craig's? Yeah, I think we saw it more in the fifty. What was it? The, the 50, 50. 54, and, fifty-four, yeah. and I yeah. like that version too. I yeah, I like fifty-four version. A lot. I liked fifty-four too. Yeah, I think that one was probably more closely resembling the tone of the novel, like mm-hmm. not. Scene for scene, but anyway, I'm digressing. It's just bad. I'm giving it a one. Stir your martini with this one, and you know, just to make a movie to try to be the end of James Bond. Mm-mm. No, quote Mary Jane. Yeah, <laughs> we ain't doing that. So one, and I will never watch this movie again. And uh, okay, Connery wins hands down for me. Fair enough. I'm going to join the team ones. 
mostly because of the soundtrack <laughs> and the really gorgeous women. Again, I, I really had higher hopes of the second time after 20 years, thought maybe it'd be better. And it just, it didn't. And I, I also am going to go with okay Connery just because uh, like Dylan says, a wink and a nod, at least we knew we were doing something kind of just silly and fun. And it went from point A to point B. This movie went from point A to point P to point W to point C to I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I mean, I get that uh, Alan appreciates it, and I and I and I love that about Alan. I really do. I really do. I, I I hate that he can't get on board Johnny English. That'll be forever our our divorce point. But the fact that he appreciates this and brought so much knowledge behind the scenes, I think, is really cool. And I, and I like that. That made this whole thing worth it. It yeah. absolutely <laughs> did. I really did love hearing that knowledge about it because it gave the movie gravity that I would not have known about otherwise. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's where I get my higher bump up from it to the yeah. three two is with alan's he answered like three four things off of my list that's why i didn't have any other questions i want to just close out the discussion by the way with a quote from david niven on his last day of filming when he was asked what people are going to think about this movie and he said it's either going to be a bucket full of fun or the biggest f up since the flood <laughs> i think yep fair enough david niven <laughs> <laughs> you called it david Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good place to, to end that and and with that uh, wrap up to our discussions we definitely have to thank the patrons who make this show and our shows on our other networks possible so we're going to hand it over to Van Allen Plexico to read our list of patrons so just go to www.plexico.net p-l-e-x-i-c-o.net or you can just go to patreon.com and search for White Rocket and join up, and it's for as little as a dollar a month, you get to be part of the show, and we send out, we, I post things occasionally on the Patreon page of interest, and you get previews, you get special deals, special offers, and discounts on things that we do, and you sometimes get shows before the, uh, the regular audience does. Here are the fine folks who are currently keeping our programs on the air that we owe everything to. Samuel Salvatore and Bart Lindsay, uh, Bradley Blackman, Brian Gray, Chris Usher, Gary Grant, Logan Chilton, Phil Amthor, Richard Stevens, Steve Trawick, Susan Trawick, Tom Anderson, Willie Carden, Ann Kanjian, A.U. Falling Up, Ben Bloodsworth, Clay Henson, Dan Thompson, Daniel Odom, David Evers, David Hegler, Emmanuel Seaman, George Gaston, Jacob and Robin Fleming, James Greenwell, Joel Beckham, John Otsuki, Catherine England, Kevin Smith, Mickey B, Phil Davis, Preston Settle, Reynolds Wolf, Rich Reimer, Steve Harlan, Timothy, WDE Richie, Wes Atkinson, William Morgan, Wilson Beard, Winston Body, Alex Nguyen, Blake Heron, Boris the Tiger, Cato the Barner, Chris Hilton, Chris Thrash, Colby Butler, Danny Flack, Plus, Darius Benton, David Simpson, Di Bama, Earl Ricks, Eric Mahan, Hugh Anderson, Josh Teal, Kevin Kenoy, Kevin Mahan, Lane Middleton, Mike Finley, Papa Todd, Randall Walker, Rob Morgan, Ross, Russell Milling, Shannon Butson, Sarah Hines, Shane Bailey, Snowdog, Stephen Houston, Tim Pittman, Todd Gray, Tony Perry, Auburn Elvis, Ben Amos, Brandon Sisson, Brandon Smith, Chris Camo, Darren Pyle, David Smiley, Donnie Reynolds, Plus, Ivor Evans, James Taylor, Jason Albrick, John Stubbs, John Zavachin, Joey Miller, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Lawrence Kane, Mark Squire, Matthew Flowers, Mick Vigicana, Nicholas Craig, Patrick Williams, Paul Bankson, Robert Drain, Robert O. Sammons, Russell Souther, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, that's the truth, Ruth, Spanky, Stephen Thompson, Trevor Johnson, Kenneth Brent Rains, Brent Rumble, and Chris 
plus our one-time and anonymous donors. We thank you all so much. Go to www.plexico.net or just go to www.patreon.com and sign up and join the family. Okay, that brings us to the end of this episode of Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the realm of comic books, TV shows, action films, you know, all kinds of cool stuff, you can check out the Longbox Crusade. Pat, where might they find Longbox Crusade? Well, Jared, I am glad you asked. You can find the Longbox Crusade at www.longboxcrusade.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Longbox Crusade. Come check us out. Back to you, Jared. Awesome. And at this point, I got to do one more thing. Everybody needs to listen to this sweet, sweet promo for a sweet, sweet book that's out there. Three hundred thousand words. Five thousand individual entries. Four hundred fifty three pages. 271 stories covered 80 original illustrations it all adds up to one book the james bond lexicon the unofficial guide to the worlds of james bond in movies novels tv and comics by alan j porter and jillian j porter now available from white rocket books and via your favorite online bookstore for more information visit the companion website at jamesbondlexicon.online or follow us on Twitter at bondlexicon And now that we're back from that promo, let's talk to Alan Porter and thank him once again for being our guest here tonight. Alan, where can people find you if they want to find out more about you or your books, all that good stuff? You can find out more at uh, jamesbondlexicon.online for all the Lady stuff around the James Bond Lexicon book. Thanks to all those folks who already purchased a copy. And if you have, uh, we'd love to see a, a selfie of you sort of with the book. We're putting a reader's gallery together on the webpage. So uh, please send those in. You can follow us on Twitter at Bond Lexicon and at Tumblr and Instagram at James Bond Lexicon. Awesome. Pat, where can they find you? Well, Jared, I'm glad you asked. You can find me on the Twitter at Christatos01. Delvin. You can find me on Twitter at D-E-E underscore R-A-Y-1977. Jason. You can find me at Weasel Skull on Twitter or at Jason Albrick on Facebook and Instagram. And I am, of course, at Yard Sale Artist, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It is all at Yard Sale Artist. And I want to thank the lads for taking on another dangerous, dangerous mission for this episode. We did it. We did it, team. We have knocked out Casino Royale 67 and OK Connery. Mm-hmm. PTSD, post traumatic smart <laughs> disorder. That's what, that's what we got going on. <laughs> awesome. And thank you again, Alan, for bringing your appreciation, almost said love, but your appreciation for this film to the show and giving us the behind the scenes. No problem. Fun as always. I don't know why I just keep coming back. But. <laughs> don't know either, but we love having you. And that is it to everybody out there in listener land. But don't you worry, on Your Majesty's Secret Podcast will return. We will be back on next episode with Jason's Choice.
this episode features the James Bond Goldeneye 007 Trap Remix by The Whiddler. Super poo.